Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in to this final Bible study of the book of Genesis. What a journey it has been. Uh, we started this on May 4th of 2022, and now we're wrapping it up uh, the middle of March of 2023. So thank you for all those who have um, joined me in the process of going through this entire book. Um, the goal of these studies, first and foremost, is I personally want to learn. When I dig into these scriptures uh, every day to prep for these studies, it is simply that. That is my goal, not to find some profound new thing to share, not to uh, get a whole bunch of comments, not to get a bunch of views, not to do anything other than for me personally to dig in and open up the scriptures and see what God has to say to me. And that has been God's charge in my life uh, since we started this back in July of 2020, was to dig into the scriptures for my own benefit to learn God's word so that he can use me more and more day by day as I study it more and more. And if one person benefits from each study other than myself, then that's a huge win. Even if it's just for my own benefit, that's great. And what I've heard over and over again from people uh, in, in uh, getting the comments and the emails, which I appreciate, is that you're getting stuff out of this as well. And how do I know that is happening? Because the Bible guarantees it. It promises. God says that his word will not come back void. This is the word of truth. This is God's word to us. The basic instructions before leaving earth. It is the instruction manual from the manufacturer. And we, we each of us, benefit hugely from getting into it and studying it. And not just... Uh, going to Sunday service and for 90 minutes listening to a great um, captivating talk where somebody does quote from the Bible two or three verses. Uh, no, the Bible calls us to dig in deep and read it from cover to cover, uh, from Genesis to maps, as I like to say. And that's what we're doing. And, and there isn't anything profound about it. Uh, it is just digging into the, the Word and seeing what God has to say to us. So we're going to do that as we wrap up uh, the entire book of Genesis and we hit Genesis 50. Uh, this intro has already been longer than I want it to be, so I apologize for that. I can ramble. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we have. Thank you that we are able to come together. Thank you that you have called us by name you have called us out and you've told us how much you love us. Lord, I pray that each of us will open up our hearts to you, will open up our minds and our ears, and we will be receptive to the word that you have for us. You will teach us, and through this, we will learn of your great love for us and your sovereignty over this creation that you have um, bestowed on us uh, to be stewards of. Thank you, Lord. Speak through me. Lord, may I be an instrument approved. We love you, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's three chunks that we're going to uh, break up uh, chapter 50 into. Um, and the first chunk is verse 50 uh, through, excuse me, chapter 50, verse 1 uh, through verse 14. So why don't you join me and let's read the first 14 verses. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt 
besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their livestock and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizram. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Michpala near Memre, which Abraham had brought, bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So finally, after so many years, um, Jacob, Israel, father Israel, uh, the third in the line of the patriarchs, has died. So the opening verse is Joseph wept, um, but I want to actually back up just a little bit in verse 33 of 49. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. This gave me pause, was gathered to his people. Uh, if you've been going with us through Genesis, this is a common phrase. When Abraham died in Genesis 25.8, the text says he was gathered to his people. Ishmael in 25.17, gathered to his people. Isaac in Genesis 35.29, gathered to his people. Genesis 49.33, we just read, Jacob was gathered to his people. Numbers 20.24, Aaron uh, Moses' brother, was gathered to his people. It's an interesting phrase, and I just pass over it, just simply mean to, when I read it, I just assumed, well, he died. Um, and there's three different points that I want to make on this, is, is that one, it, it could be a phrase that was used simply to say, this individual is going the way all of his past relatives have gone, meaning he's died. He's going the same way that all the past relatives have gone into death. Uh, number two, it also could imply being placed in the family tomb, going to literally be with the, uh, the bodies of the deceased in the family tomb, which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all were placed in the same tomb. Um, but it is a, one of the commentaries that I read said that it is an ancient custom, uh, a phrase that was used in the ancient Near East, uh, simply to say that a person died. Um, outside of uh, Israel, outside of the, the Jewish perspective, the culture of the day believed in that you, when you died, you went to an afterlife where you were gathered together with all of your past relatives who had died. Not a heaven or a hell, but simply a gathering together of all your ancestors. Now, keep in mind, uh, and the reason why I say this is that this shouldn't cause us to question um, uh, doctrine and and to a, a philosophical conclusion that, that this is a profound thing because... Um, they say was gathered to his people that we should then take that as scripture. I see it as simply a phrase that was common at the time. And the other thing to keep in mind is this is recalling the story before uh, Israel was given the Torah, before they were given the uh, Talmud, before they were given the Tanakh, which is the whole Hebrew scripture of our Old Testament is what's called the Tanakh, which is the, uh, the Torah and the prophets and the teachings, uh, um, the judges, etc. Our whole Old Testament is the Tanakh. So they didn't have that yet. They didn't know about heaven and hell. That hadn't been um, given to them yet. So this is, in my mind, it's nothing to camp out on. It's nothing to get all up in a tizzy about the fact that they were gathered to their people. It simply means Jacob was dead. Jacob died. Okay, now the very first verse of Genesis 50, verse 1, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept. Joseph is... Uh, he shows his emotions uh, on the surface. And how do we know that? Um, 
there's so many verses where it specifically says that Joseph wept. Uh, 42, 24, 43, 30, 45, 2, 45, 14, and 15, 46, 29, 50, verse 1, and 50, verse 17, we're going to hit on, where Joseph is going to weep. These are all instances, and uh, was quite emotional when he first saw his brothers uh, who had sold him into slavery after however many years it had been, 17 years. Um, yeah, I would weep too. And then to see God mightily moving and to see God doing things, um, I weep as well. The, the, the Chosen, the amazing uh, TV series, that is free. You can go uh, on your phone or your computer and download the app and watch it for free. Just the chosen, I think it's the chosen.com or chosen.net. They also have it on, I believe, Amazon and Netflix, the, the first season. But I cry nearly every single episode. Uh, it's usually tears of joy, uh, but because it, the show does such an amazing job of painting a picture of what life was likely like. Uh, they do take some artistic liberties, but I think they do a phenomenal job of holding to scripture and it catches me up. Uh, I get totally caught into it and, uh, I start crying like a baby in some of the scenes. Um, man, the opening scene where, uh, Jesus, not opening scene, but I believe it's in the first season when Jesus says, um, he quotes from Isaiah, uh, and he says that you are mine. I have called you by name and you are mine. Uh, and he calls uh, Mary Magdalene uh, out of the, the life she was in. And in that instant, the demons leave her and, and whew, gives me chills. Just, just you got to watch the show. It's amazing. And I don't fault Joseph at all uh, for showing his emotions and everything that's going on. Um, okay, so Joseph weeps for his dad. Then, uh, verse 2, he directs his physicians to embalm his father. Um, and then Jacob had specifically requested to be taken uh, to the tomb where his father and grandfather are, right? So we saw this in Genesis 49, verse 29. We also saw it in Genesis 47, 30, where Jacob made it very clear he wanted his body to be taken back up to the promised land. So, uh, this so Joseph gives instruction for his physicians to embalm his father Jacob. Now I just want to take a quick little bit to camp out on what this is. This is the only mention of uh, embalming uh, of an Egyptian or anything along those lines that that we have. And I looked up on Smithsonian si.edu on embalming and mummification. So I'm going to read this for you. It's a little long, but I think uh, I really enjoyed it, hearing what the process was. This is the process for uh, the Egyptians, and I'll come back to specifically what Joseph does with his father, uh, which is slightly different. The methods of embalming or treating the dead body that the ancient Egyptians used is called mummification. Using special processes, the Egyptians removed all moisture from the body, leaving only a dried form that would not easily decay. It was important in their religion to preserve the dead body in a lifelike manner uh, as much as is possible. So successfully were they that today we can view the mummified body of an Egyptian and have a good idea of what he or she looked like some 3,000 years uh, uh, ago. The mummification process took 70 days. Special priests worked as embalmers, treating and wrapping the body. Beyond knowing the correct rituals and prayers to be performed at various stages, the priests also needed a detailed knowledge of human anatomy. This next part might get a little gross for some. The first step in the process was the removal of the internal parts of the body. Uh, the brain was removed with a special hook instrument, went through the nostril to get the brain out. Uh, then they removed all of the organs from the abdomen, um, the chest, the stomach cavity, um, usually made a, an incision on the left side of the abdomen to go in and get those out. Those were then placed in jars. Um, the heart was left in place, believing it to be center for a person's being and intelligence. 
The other organs were preserved separately with the stomach, liver, lungs, and intestines placed in a special bar, uh, a box or jars, as I mentioned. The embalmers next removed all moisture from the body. This they did by covering the body with uh, natron, a type of salt, which has great drying properties. The result was a very dried out but recognizable human form. To make the mummy seem even more lifelike, uh, the sunken areas of the body that no longer had things in them uh, were filled with linen and other materials, and false eyes were added. Next, the wrapping began. Each mummy uh, needed hundreds of yards of linen. The priests carefully wound the long strips of linen around the body, sometimes even wrapping each individual finger and toe separately before wrapping the entire hand or foot in order to protect the dead from mishap Amulets were placed along among the wrappings and prayers and magical words written on some of the linen stripes. Often the priest placed a mask of the person's face between the layers of the head bandages. At several stages, the form was coated with warm resin and the wrapping resumed once again. At last, the priest wrapped the final cloth or shroud in place and secured it with linen straps. The mummy was complete. The tomb was then prepared with everything the person would need in the afterlife. Furniture, statues, wall paintings of religious or daily scenes were prepared, and lists of food and prayers were included. The thought was through a magical process, anything that was pictured or listed would become an actual thing for them in the afterlife. So you gave a list of everything you wanted them to have in the afterlife so that they had lots of stuff with them, in the afterlife. As part of the funeral, the priests performed spiritual religious rites at the tomb's entrance. The most important part of the ceremony was what called the opening of the mouth ceremony. A priest touched various parts of the mummy with a special instrument to open those parts of the body to the senses enjoyed in life uh, and needed in the afterlife. By touching the instrument to the mouth, the dead person could now speak and eat. He was now ready for his journey to the afterlife. Almost done. The Egyptians believed that the mummified body was the home for the soul and spirit. If the body was destroyed, the spirit might be lost. The idea of spirit was complex and involving three spirits, the Ka, Ba, and Aka. The Ka, a double of the person, would remain in the tomb and needed the offerings and objects there. The Ba is the soul uh, and was free to fly out of the tomb and return to it. And the Aka, translated as spirit, which had to travel through the underworld to the final judgment and entrance to the afterlife. To the Egyptians, all three of these were essential. Now, important thing to note is when you look at verse 2, Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. In looking at that, he didn't go through the full mummification process, nor did he have a priest do this. He had his physician embalm the body. The idea being he had the salt portion of it used because there was a long journey. They mourned for 70 days before they left, and then they took the body on the long journey back up to the promised land, and even then they didn't go straight to the tomb. If you just take a body and start moving it around for that period of time, it is gonna go into rot and decay and stink something fierce. So he had his physicians go through the embalming process to use the salt to solidify the body, to dry it out so that the body could be brought and then put in the tomb uh, some months later. Uh, so I, I don't worry that Jacob was mummified. And the same thing at the very end of this chapter, we're going to see that Joseph um, dies at the end and he has his body uh, embalmed as well. Um, simply for storage purposes, because his bones are going to be taken back to the promised land. Uh, and now I'm just jumping right ahead of myself all the way to the end. Okay, so Jacob is embalmed for the journey north. Then this massive host of people travels north to the promised land. They go north uh, with a great host. My NIV says large company. If you have a King James, it says a very great company. 
Uh, other translations have an immense group, impressive procession. The ISV says there were a lot of people. I'm not familiar with the ISV translation, but I like the, the translation. Yeah, there were a lot of people. Uh, and we even get this from um, the Canaanites even look at it and say, this is a very large group of Egyptians. Imagine, imagine living in the land uh, as shepherds, as, as sojourners that, that just set up camp from spot to spot. And you see this massive host come through of Egyptians, uh, of, of Israelites. I mean, clearly whoever, whatever was happening, this was a big deal. And whoever they were mourning was a mighty King. And on that note, I want you to turn with me, leave a marker here in Genesis 50, and we're going to go back to Genesis 12. I didn't mark any of these. So give me a second as we go to them. So Genesis 12, Verse 2, Genesis 12, um, actually we'll hit it up on uh, verse 1. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, let's flip on to Genesis 26. 25, 26. Uh, Genesis 26, 3, halfway through. This is God talking to Isaac. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring... All nations on earth will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant being reaffirmed to Isaac. You can, there's more on the Abrahamic covenant that we've covered. Uh, Genesis 12, 15, 17, all have elements of the Abrahamic covenant, but there it's being passed on to Isaac. Now, let's flip a few chapters to 28, 13. Genesis 28, just a few pages. Verse 13, this is God now talking to Jacob. Verse 13, there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. The Abrahamic covenant passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then we saw Jacob, uh, just last week, we saw Jacob give the patriarchal blessing and the prophecy of that covenant passed on to the 12 tribes of Israel. And when you look at the host of people that came to celebrate Jacob's life as he was buried in that tomb, you see God fulfilled what he said he was going to do. Abraham's name was great, and he had already become a mighty host. But imagine, this is not going to be the largest host to come to this same spot. After the Exodus, when Israel as a nation has spent 400 plus years growing in Egypt, they will return to the promised land. And I would have loved to have been a shepherd to see that group wandering across the valley of the desert to see what that would have looked like. It would have scared the, 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 the socks right off of me, uh, though I don't think they had socks back then. My sandals would have flopped right off. Um, okay, so uh, I lost my spot completely. Now we're going back to um, chapter 50. So they go north, this whole massive host goes north, uh, and they bring with them... Um, uh, Pharaoh's officials, the members of Joseph's household, chariots, horsemen. It's basically everything but the kids and all of their herds. I would argue that it is as large, if not larger, than the company that traveled south when Jacob came into Israel uh, some 17 years prior. Uh, but I don't know that. Um, they went to the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan. 
the Canaanites who lived there saw the morning in, uh, at the threshing floor of Atad. They said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizram. Abel Mizram means mourning of the Egyptians. Okay, so uh, just for some historical context, what is a threshing floor? We are going to pull out the Bible dictionary. And I'm going to read this for you because this is not a common thing that we see today. Threshing floor, the place where grain was threshed. Usually clay soil was packed to a hard, smooth surface. Sheaves of grain were spread out on the floor and trampled by oxen, often drawing crude wooden sleds uh, with notched rims. A shovel and fan were used in winnowing the grain. Threshing floors were often on hills where the night winds could more easily blow away the chaff. Here are a few photos uh, that I found of threshing floors. The idea being it's a big, hard, round spot uh, that they could easily gather together and have a morning service, uh, a service of mourning. It also likely was up on a hill overlooking the Jordan. Um, I looked up on, on Google to see if we know where this location is. Um, and Google did give me, one of the articles gave me an exact GPS location and there's, there's nothing there. It's on the east side of the Jordan on the top of a hill. There's no remnant of anything. Uh, nobody's built a, a, a temple or a mosque or anything. So that very well could have been the spot. It is, I don't know, we don't know why Joseph went to that spot in particular on the east side of the Jordan, but for whatever reason, it was significant and he went there and they had seven days of mourning for Jacob. So then they go to the cave in the field of Machpelah near Memre. This is the town of Hebron. Hebron still exists to this day. There's a new Hebron and an old Hebron, uh, the old city of Hebron. This is in the West Bank. And there is a temple uh, as well as a Muslim mosque that's on this site. It's called the Cave of the Patriarchs or the Tomb of the Patriarchs. It's 19 miles south of Jerusalem. And this is where they believe that the three patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are um, entombed. It is heavily contested. It is a heavily contested site. And the reason being is both uh, Muslims and Jews see the patriarchs as um, significant characters. Uh, in Islam, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all prophets. Um, they have a different view of the prophets. They view that prophets are sinless and perfect in both physical form as well as mentally, as well as spiritually. Uh, all the prophets never sinned. That's their view. And you can read specifically, there is a chapter in the Quran called the prophets, which lists uh, a lot of the prophets that, that a lot of the uh, patriarchs are listed in there. Um, Islam and Judaism not the same religion, not the same religion at all, um, but I'm speaking to the choir here. Uh, Judaism is the foundation of Christianity, and Abraham is to us just as Abraham is to the Jews, an amazing uh, man of God that God made a covenant with, uh, which we now are blessed today. As I read those three verses of the passing on of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, it says specifically the entire earth will be blessed through you. And that is through Jesus Christ, was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, which is Jacob's son. Uh, and through him, the entire earth has been blessed. But additionally to that, through the Jews as a people group, the entire earth has been blessed. I could go down on so many tangents now. Uh, I got to stop. But that place did exist. Here's some photos um, of uh, this temple, I would love to go there if it were if it wasn't in the West Bank and in such a, a, a heavily contested uh, geographical location. Uh, I'd love to go there um, just to be able to be in the site where all three of these amazing patriarchs who screwed up like crazy, but were human. And again, as I've spoken about so many times, the fact that they screwed up and God used them is gives hope for us. And I'm going to talk about that at the end. I'm just going all over the place here. 
Uh, okay, let's keep going. Uh, we're going to uh, read verse 15 through 26 in uh, Genesis 50. So Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph, Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Man, Joseph's brothers. Uh, I mean, we see again and again these guys. Uh, uh, in Genesis 37 is when we saw them uh, sell Joseph into slavery. Uh, and then the whole process of the last few months, we've seen them go back and forth. Um, and we see here that there's still fear uh, of Joseph's retaliation uh, that after Jacob is is dead, he's going to retaliate. Now, there is some grounds for that. And why do I say that? Um, well, if you recall Esau, when Jacob um, stole the uh, patriarchal blessing, he tricked his father Isaac, who was blind. He tricked Isaac into giving him the birthright um, by imitating Esau. When Esau found out about it, he vowed that after his father Isaac died, he would uh, seek revenge and kill Jacob. So I don't know if Uncle Isaac's story or their father Jacob's story had passed on and there was this fear that their brother Joseph might do the same, that now that their father is out of the way, uh, Joseph can finally retaliate for the brutal treatment that he received. And so they make up this story. Um, they, they send this letter saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. And skeptics might look at this and say, Dave, it says it in the Bible that, that Jacob wrote this. How do you know that it was uh, written by the brothers? Because of line 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And then the very next line, they send this letter saying, your father left these instructions. So, I mean, it's possible that, that Jacob... Uh, did write this letter, but the the line right before it tells me that that the brothers were fearful. They didn't trust uh, the sincerity that Joseph had um, in what he had done for them these past 17 years that they have now lived in uh, Egypt. So Joseph, when he hears this, he weeps for them. Um, one good thing that we do see is they say, "We are your slaves." Um, but Joseph reassures them, uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We're going to come back to that in just a second. We're going to come back to this, um, God intended it for good. And also this question of who's responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. Who is ultimately responsible for that? It's an interesting question. We'll come back to it. So now we are going to read uh, verse 22 through 26. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Mekir, son of Manasseh, were placed at the birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So a few things here. Um, the children, so he sees his grandchildren and great-grandchildren to the third generation. He saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Uh, also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at the birth on Joseph's, Joseph's knees. The idea is, is that he was there for the birth of his great-grandchildren, um, Manasseh's son, Machir's sons. So that is his son's son and their children is the idea. He lived to be 110, and I actually found um, uh, one commentary said that ancient Egyptian records, actually it's right here written in my Bible notes, ancient Egyptian records indicate that 110 years was considered to be the ideal lifespan. To the Egyptians, this would have signified divine blessing upon Joseph. Um, we also see in uh, Joshua 24:29, Joshua 24:29, that Joshua was also 110 at his death. He didn't live nearly as long um, as uh, his forefathers, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But 110 is still a, a good old age. Let me just check my notes here. Uh, yes. So Joseph reaffirms what we already knew. Um, why don't you flip with me? So leave a finger here and we'll go back to Genesis 15. We're just jumping all over Genesis as we recap here. So Genesis 15, uh, verse 13 through 16. This is um, uh, part of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we're going to pick it up. Verse 13 of 15. Then the Lord said to him, this is to Abraham, uh, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nations they, they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go up to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So much to go over here. This is a prophecy that God gave to Abraham uh, about the time that Israel will spend in Egypt. Now, Egypt isn't specifically named, uh, but it says here that it's going to be 400 years. The descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated. Now, the Israelites are in Egypt for more than 400 years as slaves. They come at the beginning as friends uh, under Pharaoh. Um, they're given uh, the, the best of the land, and they're put in responsibility of even shepherding uh, Pharaoh's crops, or uh, uh, flocks, I should say, excuse me. But uh, we're going to see the opening verses of Exodus, uh, if and when uh, God... Um, Continuing on into Exodus is the plan. Uh, I'm going to take a break for a period of time. And unless God gives me specific instructions, otherwise we'll pick up Exodus before this year is out. Uh, and the opening chapter uh, picks it right up right here where we leave off uh, in Genesis 50 uh, with the people um, being in Egypt. But it's a promise that God gives to Abraham, which then in Genesis 50, as we flip back, um, Joseph then reaffirms, saying, you will not be left here. God will remember you, and when he does, bring my bones with you. And we do actually see this in Joshua 24, 32. Uh, Joseph's bones are brought with, and he is specifically embalmed. He's not mummified. He's not mummified, um, but his bones are stored in such a way that they can bring him with. And in the Exodus, they, as they're leaving and plundering the Egyptians, that was one of the things I meant to hit on. Um, it says that you will great, grow uh, wealthy. That verse that I just read from Genesis 15, 13 through 16 mentions that you'll go greatly wealthy. And when we cover it in Exodus, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they plunder. Egypt, and they take a great amount of wealth with them that the Egyptians actually give to them to take on their way. They don't steal it. They are gifted it. 
by the Egyptians. But that is jumping right into uh, Exodus. So then Joseph died at 110, and that wraps up Genesis. So as we uh, talk about application, and as we wrap up the entire first book of our Bible, a question to start out with, is this question specifically related to uh, the brothers and Joseph being sold into slavery? Who was it that was responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery? It was the brothers, right? Well, obviously so. It had to have been the brothers, but you could also make the argument uh, that perhaps Satan was at work. Yes, you could make that argument. Um, Satan is uh, always running to and fro throughout the earth, looking at ways to disrupt God's plan. And Satan could have easily seen Joseph, this dreamer, is going to be mightily used by God. And then God steps in, uh, excuse me, and then Satan steps in and causes strife and causes anger uh, and hatred on the parts of the brothers towards their beloved favorite son um, of their father, Jacob. Is that possible? Yeah, it's also human nature. We don't know that Satan specifically did that, but um, what about God? That verse that we hit, uh, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph specifically says that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So did God cause Joseph to be sold into slavery? No, God did not cause that to happen. God is sovereign. When you look at the story of Genesis from the opening line to where we're at, in fact, Open with me to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Boom. And there was light. God created with his voice. He just spoke it into existence and it came to be. So here's a question that's along these same lines. Why would God create something that wasn't perfect? What do I mean by that? Why would God create a garden in which uh, sin could enter in? Why would he create a garden in which uh, a serpent, the devil, was able to have influence? Why would God create angels to begin with if he knew if God really is om om omnipotent and all-knowing and omniscient? If he knows beginning from end, he knows that Lucifer, he knows that this angel of his that's uh, the most beautiful one is going to, out of pride... Um, leave and bring a third of the angels with him? Why would God create the angels if he knew there was going to be dissension among them? Why would God create Adam and Eve if he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin? Why would he create any of this? Uh, what's the point? If you know it's going to break, why even make it to begin with? Because God loves us. Because God as a creator is so powerful that he's not intimidated or worried about what we're going to do. Because he is sovereign, he knows the beginning from the end. And so when we, when we bring it back to this question of the brothers, who's responsible for selling Joseph into slavery? Well, the brothers are. The brothers obviously are. God didn't orchestrate that to happen but he allowed it to happen. In the same way, the fall, God knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. In the same, 
Satan and, and his fall from heaven. God knew it was going to happen and he allowed it to happen. The illustration that, that I love for this is a chessboard, a chessboard, a chess game. If you play chess, chess is one of my favorite games, but at the same time, I hate it. <laughs> and the reason why I hate it is because I'll play it and I think I'm doing great. And then all of a sudden I realize, wow, I am not doing great. I'm playing against somebody who knows way more about this game than I do. Chess is a game where you can make mistakes and your opponent is able to use those mistakes against you. But if you're playing against a master, that master will walk you through step by step your own failures they will use to their benefit without you even knowing until you're in checkmate. And I think this is how God works. The analogy doesn't quite work because in a chess, in chess, uh, you or I can study the game of chess. And eventually, if we study enough, we can become a master. We can become a chess master. If you spend time studying it and learning all the different openings and closings and strategies, etc., with each new failure, you'll learn more and more and more. We can never know uh the fullness of God in the sense of his intelligence or know what God thinks. We can never be on the same plane as God. So in that analogy of a chessboard, that's the only fault in it. But uh, in this chess game of Satan and God, I just want to make a few things clear. Uh, it's not a game that is being fought between God and the devil. The devil is a created being by God uh, and is on par with the angels. It's not Jesus versus Satan. No, Jesus is fully man, but also fully God. A whole nother level, not a created being, but a being that was there at existence is Christ. Satan was created and he is on the same plane as the angels. And it is the angels in the end and revelation that defeat Satan. Um, it's not like God's quaking in his uh, sandals or shoes or whatever saying, oh no, I hope Satan doesn't win this. He knows the beginning from the end. But you know, in that analogy of the chess game, I would love, I don't know if this is even possible or if it will be in heaven. But when you look at what Jesus went through, Satan's perspective throughout all of it, you know his hand was at play. And it specifically says, it specifically says, and I have it written here. Let me pull it up. It specifically says uh, in Luke 22, 3 and John 13, 27, Satan entered Judas. We know that Satan was at work in everything that happened. Uh, Good Friday, uh, the tomb, uh, the, the, not the tomb, excuse me. Uh, and Good Friday and everything that happened there with the arrest um, in the garden, uh, the inciting the mob, the Pharisees. I mean, when you look at that chessboard, Satan thinks he's winning because look what's happening to God's son. Look what's happening. They're arresting him and he's in front of the Sanhedrin. And no doubt Satan had his uh, uh, ploy. Satan had his uh, strings attached to his puppets in the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm not saying that all of the Pharisees were evil. Um, we do know that Nicodemus, I'm going down tangents, I'm sorry, but, but Satan had his strings at work, right? But that moment, that moment when Satan thought he won, the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, when Jesus is being flogged, it's brutal. It's a brutal scene that uh, really hurts because uh, they, they, it's very grotesque. Uh, and you see um, chunks of flesh being ripped off with the, the whip with the spikes on it. And it's just, ugh, it, it, it's bad. Um, I suggest that you do watch it, though. I do suggest that you watch it, especially uh, with Easter coming up. Uh, to try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who was there and watching that uh, and to try to realize what our Savior did for us and the, the 
horrible, horrible um, affliction that he experienced. But in that movie, you see uh, Satan walking in the crowd. Uh, they took artistic liberty, obviously, in that, but you see um, Satan walking through and smiling as Jesus is being tortured. But when you look at the chessboard of this cosmic game, there's a point at which there is nothing that you can do that will get you out of checkmate. When a, a chess master has done their job perfectly, every single move you do ends in checkmate. And there was a point at which Satan realized that his ploy, his strategy, his push to crucify the Son of God was actually checkmate. And that is the, the victory of victories that extends throughout all of time is that moment when our sins were forgiven and when we were bought back into heaven and the creator of all from beginning to end knew what was going to happen and allowed it to happen because he loves us and wants us to partake in that, that heaven that he has stored up for us. There's a song that uh, always makes me well up when I listen to it. Um, it's death was arrested by North Point worship. And there's a line in it. Our savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoices as though heaven has lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. You got to listen to it, pull it up, make sure you listen to the live version. Um, they do a phenomenal job. That's Genesis. Genesis is the story of God's sovereignty. As we see all of these things happen, as we see the Abrahamic covenant, we see God's promise for good, the very beginning in Genesis, God created and he saw that it was good. And he still sees uh, in his sovereignty and in his ability to see the beginning from the end, he knows what's going to happen. And he sees the good. He sees uh, with, with Joseph and what happened there with his brothers. He saw what his brothers were going to do, what Joseph's brothers were going to do. And though his brothers meant it for evil, God intended it for good. Joseph went through what he went through because God knew he could go through it and there would be good that would come after out of that. It's the same reason why we were given free will and are given free will today. God doesn't want automatons. He doesn't want robots that simply uh, uh, lack uh, the ability to make a decision. He wants us to love him for the creator that he is we're called to do that. In light of Genesis, this book of the creation, the call on the believer is to submit. That's what we're called to do. In light of everything that's here, we are simply called to submit. And it's not submission in some way that we're worried that God's going to be this cosmic killjoy that, that is going to rule it over us and take away all of our fun. No, it's submission in light of his glory and power and the reality of the fact that God is in charge of everything. And whether you, whether you join his team or don't, God's will will be done. And in light of that, all we can do is fall at our knees and say, God, I submit, I submit, I love you, and I want to join your team. The amazing thing is, is that the God who's done all of this wants us to be a part of it. 
again, with this cosmic uh, perspective, God could just snap his fingers and answer prayer and snap his finger and, and have his will be done. But he uses us, he uses believers to, to uh, have his outcome played out in our lives. What do I mean by that? You pray for something specifically, and then simultaneously someone else feels a prompting that they're challenged by God to do something, and then they step out in faith and they do something, and that then answers your prayer. And people stand back and say like, oh my gosh, wow, what a coincidence. I prayed for this and this happened over here. I guess I didn't need to pray to God. God didn't answer my prayer. You did. No, God answered your prayer through that other person. We are the hands and feet. I could keep going. I could keep going on and on and on um, because it's so good and it's so powerful. If you aren't on that team, I invite you to join the team right now. It's simple, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ did all the things that he said he did, that he died on the cross for our sins, we are forgiven and we are on his team. Repentance is implied in that. There must be a level of acknowledging our position to God, who we are as broken people, submitting to God and then saying, use us. Because no matter how I try to live this life, I'm going to screw it up and I'm going after things that are pointless, that aren't fulfilling. And it's this endless cycle of life will be better when I have this, then I have that, then I'm miserable, then life will be better when I have this, and then I have that, and then I'm miserable. But in submission to God, we're put in charge of things and given responsibilities for things that have kingdom impact, that truly bring joy and have lasting results. We're not storing up for ourselves crap to put in our tomb to use in the afterlife. Anything that can be drowned or burned up is gone. The only thing that's going to last, the only thing are the things that we do for God for kingdom impact. So I invite you to pray with me now. If you haven't prayed the prayer of salvation, pray it with me. For those people who have prayed it, pray it again. There's no harm whatsoever in praying it again and reaffirming that faith you have. So repeat after me. Lord, I am broken. I fall on my knees asking for your forgiveness. I acknowledge who you are and who I am. I acknowledge right here and now who Jesus Christ is. Thank you, Lord, for the work that he did on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now, Lord, I ask that you empty me of myself and that you fill me up with your spirit. Change me from the inside out, Lord. I am yours. Lord, for those people that just prayed that prayer, thank you. That's so exciting. That's so awesome. Angels are rejoicing in heaven. Lord, I pray that you will surround them with people to support them. Lord, I pray that you connect them with a phenomenal Bible-based church as they grow in their faith and as they grow in their spiritual development. Use them in a mighty way. Give them strength as they surrender every single day to you. Lord, we know that it is not an instantaneous thing that we're suddenly perfect, but that it is a life devoted to you of you slowly changing us from the inside out as we give and re release our problems and our challenges to you. And day by day, we grow closer to you. Lord, perform an amazing miracle through each person that's listening now to each new believer, Lord, and to every Christ follower that's listening or watching, Lord, we are here. We want to be used by you. Challenge us and use us. We love you, Lord. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, I went way longer than I was expecting to, but uh, I was passionate. And look at this. We've gained a cat in the process. Hi, Lily. Uh, so I'm going to be taking a break Uh for a decent amount of time as we launch two new aspects of our ministry. Uh, and I'll be going to Malawi for a decent chunk of time. There will be updates on YouTube as well as uh, on social media. So stay tuned. 
Uh, I will be continuing unless God brings me home or the rapture of the church happens. Uh, I will be picking it up um, and doing another through the Bible study. God willing, we'll be doing uh, Exodus unless he brings uh, something else um, to light that he wants me to teach. I love you guys and uh, I'll see you again soon.